2: Welcome to episode 65 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today we are going to cover three recent oral arguments before the Illinois Supreme Court. But first we want to welcome Bob Larson of Cunningham, Meyer, and Vadreen PC PC, to the show. Bob successfully represented the defendants before the Illinois Supreme Court in the Intersagen versus Advocate case. We discussed the case in episode 57 of the show. This was the case with the juror who advised that he had worked on some matters for Advocate. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate being here. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the history, the history of this matter and how you came to be involved
1: in it. Sure. So it's kind of a tragic case. This guy came in with something called a carbuncle, a little pimple under his armpit, and the doctor incised it and drained it. And suddenly he became septic and uh, when he became septic, he was hospitalized and the treatments that they needed to do to save his life ended up reducing circulation to his legs. And this 29 year old man had both of his legs amputated below the knee. Uh, So it was a big case. It was a case that they were asking in excess of 20 to $25 million pre-trial. And uh, because of that, I was sort of brought in uh, by the client shortly before the trial to advise and, and Provide some guidance on potential appellate and post-trial issues, depending upon what happened with the trial, and uh, just to consult with trial counsel. And then we got a not guilty verdict at the trial, and I pursued all of the post-trial relief thereafter. The plaintiff filed a post-trial motion, which we defeated. They filed an appeal with the first district, which we defeated. They filed a admit petition for rehearing with the first district that we defeated, the petition to supplement the record with the first district, which we defeated. Then they PLA to the Illinois Supreme Court. That was successful. They scheduled a oral argument, and of course, the Supreme Court just came down in our favor. So,
0: so uh, Bob, why don't you? What was the issue that arose at the trial? Because it seemed that at least in the Supreme Court, there was only one issue in what seems to be a rather complex medical malpractice case. And usually, sometimes you get like a whole slew of issues in these cases did they really just appeal on the one issue involving the juror? And can you kind of walk through what that issue was and what the appellate court's ruling was on the issue?
1: Sure. So at the post-trial level in the trial court, they raised a number of different issues, evidentiary issues, closing argument issues, and so forth. And as it went its way up higher through the courts, I think they narrowed their focus and realized that they were going to try to get the attention of the Illinois Supreme Court they needed to focus on an issue that might get the court's attention. So we winnowed it down. They did that. They got their attention. They did. They, sure, they successfully they sure did. got them to look at the case. And I do believe that to a certain extent, the reason the Illinois Supreme Court took this case is because of that issue. So uh, the issue that they raised in the middle of the trial, a juror brought a note to the judge saying, hey, I got this LinkedIn request from somebody who works at the defendant corporation, corporate medical care provider, and, um, Didn't even think about it at the time, it's not a big deal to me, but I wanna do in in abundance of caution, bring this to your attention. The trial judge did a fabulous job of bringing everybody back, did a Wadir, of 10 minutes of back and forth with trial counsel, plaintiff and defendant, allowed them both to ask questions. And it established that this juror worked for this investment company, uh, which created these pools of investment money. And what he believed was that in one of those pools with dozens of investors, some of the money may have come from the defendant corporation through, a, through an endowment fund. And so that was the basis for the plaintiff then to move to strike this juror. But based upon the, the voir dire and based upon the fact that this was an attenuated relationship, the trial judge denied the motion to strike. The case went to verdict. And of course, uh, the defense succeeded. So that was the issue they really focused on at the Supreme Court level.
0: What was the issue? What other issues did they raise at the appellate court level that they kind of that seemed to put by the wayside when it got to time for PLA and argument before the Supreme Court?
1: You know, they argued about uh, whether the testimony of one of the defense experts should have been barred and some of the Supreme Court Rule 213 rulings, some of the closing argument by defense counsel. Uh, One of their experts was barred from offering standard of care opinions based upon a, a statement that he made that he, could, he wasn't in the same specialty as the defendant physician, and so they didn't like all those things, but as those things tend to go, those are very discretionary, and I think they realized sure. that wasn't going to go anywhere, but at the Supreme Court level, the argument that they made was there's this case law throughout the country, and to a certain extent in Illinois, called the implied bias doctrine, saying, I don't care what the juror says about their ability to be fair, certain relationships are such that you just have to assume they're going to be biased, if they're the spouse of one of the parties, I don't care if the spouse says, "Well, of course, I can be fair to my husband." You have to assume maybe the husband
0: doesn't there. want her to be there.
1: <laughs> exactly. That could be the
0: defendant. Husband may object. But. Exactly. Yes, he may say, "No, <laughs> she she can't be fair. She's got to go."
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: The you mentioned a petition for rehearing and a motion to, or a motion to supplement the record of the appellate court uh, that came up both at the oral argument as well as addressed in the uh, the court's opinion, the Supreme Court's opinion. Tell us about that motion.
1: So there are a couple of interesting things that happened at the first district appellate court level. First of all, the court initially issued a Rule 23 order. And then the plaintiff moved for rehearing and in part noted that one of the three judges...
0: In now, this is before the amendment last, uh, that took effect January 1 of this year, correct? The Rule 23 yeah. order? Yes. Okay. All right, very good. So it had no, it couldn't be used for any purpose. It was, we've talked about Rule 23 a fair amount on the show. It couldn't be used for any purpose. It it couldn't be used for persuasive authority. It basically was only between the parties.
1: So sorry, just make sure we remind folks about that. Absolutely. So in their petition for rehearing, the plaintiffs raised the issue that one of the three judges on that panel had actually been. A trial court judge, a motion call judge in Cook County when the case was pending. It had been pending for many years because of a voluntary dismissal and refiling. And prior to the voluntary dismissal and refiling, this one judge had made a few rulings. So in, what
0: in, in the in the case.
1: In this case. Ah okay. on some issues that they claim may have been relevant. In fact, there's this tax form issue that we'll talk about. And I believe they ruled on something with respect to that. So the first district actually excused that juror, I mean that that jurist, brought in another member of the first district, did not redo all of the arguments, but had that jurist read all of the pleadings, including the decision that was made, agreed with it, and then issued it now as a formal opinion rather than as a Rule 23. And then with respect to plaintiff's motion, plaintiff had moved, there was a tax document that this corporation had filed, and because it was a not-for-profit corporation, it has to be filed publicly. And one of the things stated in the corporate tax document is that they don't have endowments. So from there, plaintiff argued, well, then this has to be their endowment. This can't be separate money. This is their money. And as it turned out at the Supreme Court level, first of all, the argument was it wasn't timely. It hadn't been raised at the trial court level. It wasn't proper to do it for the first time at the appellate court level. And then the second issue was plaintiff wanted the court to take judicial notice and we pointed out that in judicial notice, it has to be an issue that's not controversial or subject to different interpretations. It has to be a defined fact that can't be argued one way or another. And they were making suppositions based upon what was in that tax return. But we said, no, that's not an indisputable issue. And ultimately, the first district and the Supreme Court agreed.
2: You mentioned uh, the request for judicial notice of the 990. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that and you know, what what, what the trial court did with that? Well, the trial court
0: didn't do anything with it, did they? They they didn't see it.
2: They didn't (laughs) see it. Yeah.
0: The the trial
1: court was never apprised of the issue, so it never came up. Um, One of the interesting things in the case, the the plaintiff's attorney had actually done some research on this juror mid-trial and raised some issues about this juror when he submitted his information about him having supposedly been involved in litigation and so forth. We found that very unusual. And prior to the Was that before he,
0: he raised his hand and said he might have a, an issue or, or after that?
1: Before. Oh, so oh, when wow. we went back for voir dire, uh discussion, when this juror submitted his question, suddenly the plaintiff's attorney said, oh yeah, this guy works for this company. He's their chief investment officer. He did this. And oh, by the way, he's involved in this litigation and so forth. And we kind of said, where are you getting this information? Well, I'm doing my due diligence. During the middle of a trial on a juror who's sitting on your panel- Uh, the trial court sort of admonished him for that. But the other thing that happened was prior to the case being refiled, this same tax form had been brought up as an issue in the case. So one of the things I pointed out at the Supreme Court level was this is not something they didn't know about. Yes, the actual form and their argument was, well, this specific form for the year in question was not available until the middle of the appellate process. But an identical form was available and filed every single year they didn't right. use it. And and even when they did use it, the, the, they pointed out the availability of it. Well, it was in the middle of the appellate court pleadings and well before their petition for rehearing. So they waited until they got a ruling against them at the first district appellate court level, and then suddenly raised a new issue. So for a variety of reasons, we argued that it was untimely. And then as to the issue of judicial notice, they asked that the court take notice of it, that because there's this language in the form that they say they don't have an endowment, we can assume that whatever it was he was referring to as an endowment must have been their money. I said, Well, that's that's a leap of faith. This particular corporate entity operates, it has a number of different corporations with related names. And uh, we argued you just can't make that assumption here.
0: Was there was there oral argument at the appellate court level or or did they rule they just ruled on the briefs? They did. Okay, because that that kind of affected you know when you raise that you raised this issue or pointed out that there was a justice that was removed because they had relied right. so there was no opportunity for them to have known who the merits panel was going to be prior to having gotten the Rule Twenty Three order, and once That's they true. got that they realized that whichever justice this was it's, had ruled on some issues perhaps they were related to the issues that they wanted to raise and that there was a problem and they needed to point that
1: out. Um, yeah, I think it was I, a bit of a stretch. It was it was grasping at straws, but. Yeah,
0: it it, it kind of is. It, it's apropos of several opinions that came down this week from the Illinois Supreme Court had justices who had to weren't involved, and one of them led to the Easter Day opinion that we talked about on uh, a couple episodes ago, leading to a tie uh, because one of the justices had sat on that district that had decided it at the tri- at the appellate level, and they don't when that happens so. They withdraw. I think in this case, Justice Neville sat out this one in in Enersagon because he had been on the first district at the time. He wasn't on your merits panel, was he? He was not. Yeah. So that's the that's the custom in the Supreme Court is to if if a justice was sitting as an appellate court justice at any time that that court ruled on the issue on the case that's before them, they 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 don't participate. And so that's it's a continuation of that kind of a thing. Um, so why don't you tell us about the Supreme court arguments and, uh, what they focused on. And then we'll, then we'll get to talk about the opinion that came out.
1: Sure. So the oral arguments, uh, very fun. I love doing oral arguments, especially in front of the Supreme. These were in person, right? They were. Yes. So we're down in Springfield. Um, they brought in an attorney, uh, Todd Smith, who had not been involved in the case. Really, he, his name had come up on some pleadings, but he had not been involved in the case uh, up until that point. So I wasn't sure who was going to do the oral argument on behalf of plaintiffs really until we got there. And uh, sort of right from the get-go, it became obvious where the court was leaning because plaintiff's counsel got hammered with questions. And you you can lose a lot of credibility reading the tea leaves with, with appellate court and Supreme Court justices if you think you know exactly what they're going to do
0: that's why we have a segment of the show, prediction sure to Go Wrong, where we try to predict based upon what's being argued for that very reason. But we've been good at it, but that's just dumb luck.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, you never really know, but I think I got maybe two questions. I, I actually felt awkward towards the end. I felt like I stumbled a little bit towards the end of my argument because I've done a lot of appellate arguments over the years. You write out an outline, you expect to be interrupted a hundred times, and 15, 18 minutes in when I'm not being interrupted, I kind of ran out of things to talk about. I'd made my case and it was obvious they were leaning my way. I probably should have just sat down and shut up, but that's not my nature either. So they focused really on, there were several issues brought up about the tax return and why uh, council hadn't brought it up before. One of the big issues was the uh, argument regarding what should be the standard of review here. Plaintiffs were arguing that the standard of review because of the implied bias doctrine was de novo, meaning if it fits the implied bias doctrine, then it doesn't matter whether the court exercised discretion. It's either within it or it's not. And we argued, well, even in the implied bias doctrine, courts have some level of discretion, but we also don't think the implied bias doctrine applies here. And the appellate court or the trial court clearly did a very good job of exercising a discretion in the way she evaluated this juror. She made a great record. She and, didn't just,
0: in other words, she just didn't say, well, can you be fair, Mr. Uh, juror?
1: She like dove into the to the issue, Ju- Judge Van Tyne did, right? Absolutely. Why Why do you think you can be fair? Do you have, are you being compensated by this? Tell us how this impacts you. Tell us about the relationship of your employer to this entity. She went into good depth in that. And I thought, and, and she commented on observing his demeanor. She did what we asked trial judges to do which is one of the things I pointed out to the Supreme Court. If you're going to expand this implied bias doctrine, then you're going to take away the discretion that trial judges have traditionally had to evaluate these issues. And they have always been given that discretion because they're in the best position to evaluate juror credibility. A Supreme Court and appellate court can't look them in the eye. They can't hear tone of voice. All they can see is words on a page Whereas the the trial judge has a much better ability to evaluate that, and that's why they've always been g- been given that discretion. And I think that carried a lot of weight with the Supreme Court as well.
2: So, so what, what, why don't you tell us about the the decision that just came out last week? And and uh, you know, we're basically. a big
0: fan of the big windup.
2: So this, <laughs> yeah. was the, this was the big
0: windup. So give us the give us the cherry on top.
1: <laughs> well, obviously, we were very pleased with the result. Uh, they pretty much agreed with our arguments, chapter and verse. Uh, they, There had been some arguments in the appellate court briefs by plaintiff that I thought made their way into the uh, statement of the issues of the case and the, uh, the the statement of facts. And they sort of admonished plaintiff's counsel to follow the rules in that regard. Um, and then with respect to the implied bias doctrine, they evaluated the history of it. And if you go back, there's a case, Naperville v. Worley, that, that was talked about this issue almost 100 years ago and then um, some other cases that have come down since then. But really, there hasn't been a comprehensive evaluation of the implied bias doctrine. Now, when plaintiff filed their brief, they cited cases from all over the country and statutes from all over the country in their appendix. Uh, I went through those and evaluated the fact that, first of all, I didn't think that belonged in the appendix, sort of a way to avoid the page uh, limitations. You really weren't a fan of their brief, were you? I wasn't <laughs> I mean it was well written. They're great attorneys. I'm not trying to denigrate. No, attorneys. no, I, I, I understand that. Just you
0: you you kind of went after their brief hammer and tongs, it sounds like. That's a hey, you gotta do what you gotta do.
1: You gotta do what you gotta do. Um <laughs> and and so I pointed out that really Illinois would stand alone if it suddenly started saying if if the word fiduciary, which was a big issue in this case, he the plaintiff's counsel had gotten this guy, he didn't volunteer the word, but he said, Well, if you have some relationship with the money for this company, that makes you you have a fiduciary obligation to them. And I sort of said, well, you have a fiduciary obligation to some portion of their money. You don't have a fiduciary obligation to their litigation interests. And to expand it that far, if the word fiduciary comes up to suddenly pull the parachute and say, you have no further involvement here, judge, you have to excuse this juror would be a huge expansion of the uh, doctrine. And the court agreed. They evaluated a couple of cases uh, Marson, and I can't remember the other one off the top of my head. But in one case, it was interesting. The the one case, the juror was excused, and that was upheld because, or actually, they think the verdict was reversed, because the two of the jurors said they were actually patients of the defendant doctor, and went so far as to say, if they got sick during the middle of the trial, they'd call that doctor to help them. And they said, that's too close a relationship. But yep. in a similar case, where the juror was the the juror's spouse was a patient of the defendant. The court said that wasn't clear enough. That's an indirect relationship. And so that was really the focus of the analysis. There has to be a direct relationship between the juror or prospective juror and one of the parties in order to invoke this doctrine. And then once the doctrine is invoked, even then, and I'm not sure the opinion really got into great detail on this, but even then the court has to evaluate the nature of that relationship and if it is such that it requires applying the doctrine and saying it doesn't matter, juror, whether you say you can be fair, we have to excuse you. So they left a lot of discretion for the trial judges. And in that regard, they applied the abuse of discretion standard, not the de novo
0: uh, standard of review. Is that right? They did. Okay.
1: And, and then and, they uh, also said they, they're not. They they actually struck that portion of the plaintiff's brief dealing with the tax return and and. Indicated they would not consider it because they essentially granted our motion to strike those portions that referenced the tax return and refused to take judicial notice for the timing reasons we discussed.
0: One thing that's interesting about the timing reason they still exist after the uh, after the amendment is when the motion w- there wasn't a motion to publish, if I understand correctly, it just was the court sua sponte had this issue get pointed out, and that led them to substitute in the new justice. And issue a issue now a published opinion as opposed to a Rule twenty three order, but one of the things that's interesting is, is that if there had been a motion to publish, that would have extended the time to file the either PLA or perhaps the petition for rehearing as well, and that would have they may have been able to shoehorn it in there too. So it's another one of those one of those problems with moving for publication is that it extends the time for the other side to do something, and that's always the question you've got to ask the client. Yes, we'd love this to be published, yeah. but this is the this is the downside. You're going to extend it by 35 days. So maybe we you don't want to do that.
1: For, you may yeah. just get it.
0: Yeah, right? it's, it's happened on occasion where someone files. They don't file the PLA within the first 35 days. Motion for publish is granted. And then they file it during the second 35 days that they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go, damn, maybe I shouldn't have done
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> and the client says I'm sorry counsel did you ask us for permission to do that because I don't remember you asking to put us into this position that's right, why
0: I have always asked before I move to publish make sure you understand <laughs> the risk remote though it might be um that's it's better to ask permission than forgiveness absolutely it is for sure absolutely so are there anything else that uh, you want to add to talk about this uh this case uh before uh, before we let you go on this Sunday morning
1: No, just I I thought the Supreme Court did a great job, as they often do. Um, They were very thoughtful in their questions. I was, as I said, kind of surprised at the the number of questions I got. Justice Burke, who wrote the opinion, actually asked a lot of the questions during the oral argument. And uh, I thought it was a very well-written opinion, very thoughtful. And uh, I think it's going to have some significant impact going forward in how jurors are evaluated for bias in Illinois. So it's going to have some broader impact.
0: Well, tell us more about what you think the impact might be. Because I, uh, during our, when we did our, we talked about this case on the show. I talked about two circumstances where cases I had tried where mid-trial jurors had epiphanies about their relationships with the with the parties that we had to deal with them. Uh, or one was an epiphany, and one was the lawyers realizing there might be a relationship we had to disclose it and deal with it. Um, and in both cases, the jurors stayed on the uh, stayed on the, the stayed with the jury. Um, In this case, there were two alternates ready to go in the event that this lawyer had been excused. So how do you think this might affect uh, trials moving forward in in Illinois?
1: Well, as you know, especially with these big medical systems, they're they're so large and they have so much going on that, it's really difficult to find jurors who have no relationship whatsoever to them, that they never were at one of their facilities. They've never been treated by one of their doctors. They don't have a relative who's been treated by one of their doctors. So this sort of delineates why the appellate court, or I mean, why the trial court needs a little bit more discretion to ferret this out so that we don't just start throwing jurors out left, right, and sideways anytime they say, oh yeah, my uncle got treated there. And it's going to help because cases of this type, as you know, are very expensive to try. Uh, the jurors invested a lot of sure. time on this, and this came up in the middle of a trial. So to throw that out and start all over again, or to throw out the verdict after you know two and a half weeks of trial and start all over again because of this attenuated relationship, I think would have been an injustice. And so this gives the judges who are looking at this a, a little bit more guidance in how to evaluate the circumstances under which they need to grant or deny these motions.
0: Well, that is, that is very helpful and a great insight into, you know, if you've got, you know, wh- whether the, it's a hospital situation like what you've got, you had, or, or other large corporations, you know, it's not just I drove by and saw, saw their sign one day uh, to create the relationship. So um, thank you very much, Bob. We really appreciate you joining us. And with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Munoz versus Bully and Andrews and uh, also talk about uh, – Carlson versus Suburban. Both cases argued before the Illinois Supreme Court recently. Thank
2: you. We're back for segment two of episode 65 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Uh, In the first segment, we talked to Bob Larson, and now we're going to turn to two cases. The first is Munoz versus Bullion Andrews. In this case, the question is whether the appellate court erred by finding that the defendant, Bullion Andrews, was entitled to immunity from civil actions under sections 5A and 11 of the Workers' Compensation Act, even though it was not the plaintiff's immediate employer. In addition, questions are whether the appellate court erred by finding that the defendant, Bullion Andrews, acquired immunity from civil actions under the Workers' Compensation Act by paying compensation benefits to plaintiff Munoz, who was employed by a separate entity. Third question is whether defendant Bully and Andrews LLC had a pre-existing legal obligation to pay workers' compensation benefits to plaintiff Munoz on behalf of his immediate employer. Those are the questions the Illinois Supreme Court will consider when it decides Munoz versus Bully and Andrews. And as Pat and I have talked about uh, uh, several cases, uh, uh, it seems like uh, the Supreme Court uh, deals with workers' comp cases on a not irregular basis. In this case, Bullion Andrews was the general contractor and subcontracted with a wholly owned subsidiary, Bullion Andrews Concrete Restoration to provide some aspects of the work. Before the work began, Bullion Andrews purchased a workers' compensation policy that included the subsidiary as an additional insured. Munoz was a direct employee of Bullion Andrews Concrete Restoration and was injured and Bully and Andrews paid $70,000 in benefits to him as a work in, workers' compensation policy had a $250,000 deductible. Munoz so, sued Bully and Andrews, and Bully and Andrews moved to dismiss, citing the exclusive remedy under the Workers' Compensation Act. The trial court agreed, and the appellate court affirmed. And as a note, the scope of the immunity of workers' compensation is an important concern, in this case, depending on how it's decided by the Illinois Supreme Court, could have broad consequences in that regard. Pat, tell us about oral argument. Thanks, Dan.
0: So one of the things about workers' comp, and we've ta- I think we've talked about it before, is it's very much a policy-driven issue, trying to figure out the incentives and how they how they cut. I'm going to play a segment of the oral argument uh, where, during the rebuttal, when Justice Tice, who was often the most... Active, one of the most active questioners um, at the court. Uh, you know, we didn't, uh, oftentimes the Illinois Supreme Court, we've talked about it as being something of a cold bench. And if anyone's going to be hot in terms of asking questions, it's going to be Justice Tice uh, on many cases. So I'm going to play a segment of this to kind of really illustrate the policy considerations that at least she's thinking about. And I got to think the other justices are thinking about too. I'll mention this. The Compensation Act is a real balancing act. Lots of interests here. There's concern about bad faith, there's all sorts of policy ideas swirling around. Um,
1: The idea that the the one who um, bears the burden should get the benefit certainly has appeal in terms of this equitable balancing. Um, So uh, why is that policy inappropriate in this, this setting? Uh, two reasons uh, one is that Boing and Andrews volunteered to pay uh, I mean they, they I mean they entered into and this why, why is that a problem why is it a problem um, because it, it will other sub, other contractors would take this case and say no this is a good plan I'm going to pay workers compensation. For all of the subcontractors, subcontractors on my job, and So, there were, so if if we, if, if this was the rule. You're saying then this would open the door to gamesmanship. Exactly, because under workers' comp, the benefits paid are minuscule compared to what what uh, damages are available in a common lawsuit. For example, in, in a wrongful death action, uh, there have been verdicts of multiple million dollars for construction workers killed on the job. Whereas under workers' Comp, the the benefit is limited, at least it was 500,000 or 25 years of benefits, which is substantially less than what a circuit court jury could award. And so the general contractor can look at it and say, wow, I can save myself a lot of insurance premiums if I volunteer to pay for workers' compensation. Not only that, as pointed out by the amicus brief, is that when negotiating with subcontractors, the general contractor can say, look, I'm paying for workers' comp. Therefore, you've got to reduce your bid to to accommodate that. So it would be a great uh, uh, boon for general contractors. So why is that a problem? The, the, The problem goes back to the fact that general contractors can now insulate themselves from liability for their own negligence. If they can't be sued in the circuit court for uh, something they did, they will lose the incentive to have safe uh, work sites. I, 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 yes, I understand that big policy. Specifically, you're saying, you were trying to say that if um, the general bears the burden of uh, paying the, the insurance, then when they negotiate with subs, they'll say to the subs, um, we're going to have to have a, you know, different relationship here because we're we're paying what you should be paying what's the problem with that well because then what what happens is that if a general contractor can buy immunity they get to immunize themselves from their own negligence
0: which is contrary to illinois public policy so justice tice there i can't tell if she's being the devil's advocate or if she's actually asking uh you know what? Uh, what's the problem with this? Why is this a problem? She may be asking those questions as we've talked before to try to convince one of her colleagues who isn't down with uh, with, with uh, the position of the plaintiff and trying to actually help the plaintiff. It's hard to tell. She's, she 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 yeah. is very much uh, playing the straight man there in in uh, in just asking the questions and getting the these answers and maybe making the point she's trying to make through him by asking those questions. We'll see how it breaks down when the time comes. It's hard to tell, but she's asking very closely, uh, what, the, what the policy issues implications are of a ruling in favor of the defendant employer. And in case it wasn't clear, that was counsel for the injured person, the underlying point of who lost at the trial court and at the appellate court. So with that, let's change gears, Dan, and why don't you tell us about suburban versus Carlson that was recently heard by the Illinois Supreme court.
2: Sure, Pat, uh, As you mentioned, uh, the online Supreme Court heard this case recently, and it's an important legal malpractice case that that they heard. In Suburban Real Estate versus Carlson, the court will decide when a legal malpractice plaintiff suffers injury such that the statute of limitations begins to run. The issue concerns whether there is a different accrual date for statute for legal malpractice plaintiffs who are the plaintiff in the underlying dispute as opposed to those who are defendants in the underlying dispute. One interesting, though not dispositive issue, is the status of Justice Griffin's dissent. Counsel for the appellant pointed to it for support of his position, but as Justice Tice pointed out, the dissent disappeared when Justice Griffin retired, and he was replaced by Justice Coglin, who concurred in the ruling of the majority on a petition for rehearing. Counsel described the dissent as disappeared. You will find the dissent in Pat's post that he made on this with the original decision, but otherwise, the dissent cannot be found. And uh, we talked about statute of limitations, and we talked about um, some issues with uh, differences between plaintiffs and defendants in legal malpractice claims uh, previously. But Pat, tell us about this oral argument and the implications that this might have, uh, again, for uh, for lawyers. Well,
0: because I'm a procedure nut, I'm going to start with the procedural issue, which I find fascinating, that they they bogarted this opinion, this dissent from Justice Justice uh, uh, Griffin, after his retirement, upon uh, modification of the of the uh, opinion upon rehearing, and the substitution of Justice Cogland for Justice Griffin, and this follows on in a case we're going to talk about next week, um, a case called uh, in Rick's versus Advocate. We're going to talk about the decision there, but one of the footnotes in the opinion reads this way: Plaintiff also cites Perez versus Saint Alexius as supporting a finding that he was prejudiced by the trial court's error. Defendants filed petitions for rehearing in Perez on October 8th of 2020. This is an opinion issued this week, November 19th, 2021. Petition for rehearing has been pending for more than 13 months, which remains outstanding. And as a result, the opinion has not yet been released for publication in the permanent law reports and is subject to revision or withdrawal. On September 22nd, 2021, a different panel of this court entered an order in Perez stating that the disposition of the petitions for rehearing will be forthcoming. It's two months ago. Given this lack of finality surrounding the disposition of Perez, we choose not to consider it as authority here. So I, I understand it may not be authority, but you, you just like, well, what are we doing? If you remember the Armstead case we've talked about, they sat on that petition for rehearing for 19 months. Right. Um, so... I, I don't mean to be critical. They're very busy. But when you can't, when opinions get, when dissents get disappeared and we're not sure what to do with it, what it means, why did it go away? Because let me explain what happened. They issue the original opinion with the dissent. The Then upon petition for rehearing, Justice Coghlan joins in the opinion. The dissent is still there. Right, Then it's corrected, and the only correction that I could figure out was they removed the dissent. So w- w- what, th- that's what we mean by disappeared. It's an important issue because you've got... So of the four justices that have looked at this, four judges, I should say, that have looked at this for, for so far, the trial judge and Justice Griffin say rule for the defendant. It's not timely. The other two justices uh, had looked at it, said, no, the plaintiff wins. So it's 2-2 if you count the trial judges, maybe it's only a half. Maybe it's maybe it's two to one and a half. I don't know. Uh, but at least two of the judges that have looked at this have said the defendant is right. It seems to me that the, the court should at least be able to look at what Justice Griffin said in dissent. And maybe Justice Griffin's wrong. I don't know. Um, right. But they should at least have the opportunity to look at it. And a party should at least be able to point to it and say, hey, this is we, there's at least one justice in this that was a ju- person that was a justice in this case, and who sat in the commercial calendar and decided these cases for years that agrees with us. We you, you should listen to what Justice Griffin has to say. I appeared in front of Justice Griffin many times. Was an excellent judge as a trial judge. Was an excellent uh, uh, appellate court justice, and it, we he at least should be able to be heard, and now he can't be because the dissent that he wrote has been uh, memory hold. Um, <laughs> So that brings us to the substance. So there seems to be a there seems to be a trend that seems to be developing where there's a difference between when the statute of limitations begins to run, when the legal malpractice plaintiff was the plaintiff in the underlying suit, and when they were a defendant in the underlying suit. When a plaintiff it seems to begin the statute begins to run when counsel is engaged in the underlying matter, but when a defendant, it does not run until there's an adverse judgment. And I see an incongruity there. It seems to tell- me that. That that it needs to be one thing. Now this all begins with a case called Lucy versus Pretzel and Stover, which was very awkward when I was at Pretzel and Stover. When we in medical and legal malpractice cases would cite the case involving us. Now as it turns out, we the 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 firm uh, got, uh, defeated the case, the substance of the case when the time came, but the case for which it's cited is the proposition that you actually have to have a damage in order to. Uh, um, file a legal malpractice case and if you don't your case gets dismissed that's what the case stands for um one of the solutions that was offered in this case that didn't seem to get much traction from the court was well then just either dismiss the case without prejudice if it's not timely or stay the case until he does actually get some damage uh but file the case in any event which they didn't do here uh i don't know about filing and staying or dismissing cases that seems to be a kind of a I think the court was like, that's kind of a useless exercise. But plainly in this case, in 2010, they had to hire a lawyer. And in 2013, they were told by a judge, hey, you got a problem here. You're going to lose this case. And then they don't file their lawsuit until 2016. Two years passed the second time they were told they they knew that they had a problem. Uh, So an important case, it will resolve, I think, uh, uh, one way or the other, whether we're going to continue to have this split or not in how we handle uh, those that were plaintiffs and those that were defendants in underlying matters and when their statute of limitations runs in legal malpractice cases. Um, anything else to add on this case, Dan?
2: No. Like, like we said at the beginning, the, uh, an important case, and as you just mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll get some guidance probably on if this bifurcation continues or, or how the Supreme Court's going to handle this.
0: Indeed. All right. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Doe versus Lyft. Hey, podium and podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podium and at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn as well as the podium and panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 65 of the Podium and Panel podcast. We're going to talk about Doe versus Lyft, which was recently decided by the, or not decided, recently argued before the Illinois Supreme Court. Does it constitute unconstitutional special legislation for the Illinois General Assembly to have defined rideshare companies? They call them transportation network Provi- carriers, TNCs, right. as not being, quote, common carriers. And Dan will tell us what it means for something to be a common carrier. Was the three reading requirement of the Illinois Constitution violated when a bill was vetoed and accounting bill was that had already passed was amended to be the Transportation Network Providers Act and the bill was not then read three times in each chamber of the Illinois General Assembly? Ain't that a mouthful? Or does the enrolled do- bill doctrine apply? That doctrine is that once a bill passes a legislative body and is signed into law, the court assumes that all rules of procedure in the enactment process were properly followed. Those are among the questions the Illinois Supreme Court will decide when it ad- when it addresses Doe versus Lyft. The plaintiff was allegedly raped by a Lyft driver, and she sued for among other things ne- them for among other things negligent hiring, ret- ret- retention, and supervision. The trial court dismissed the case, but certified two questions, which the appellate court in a split decision answered in favor of Lyft. The language at issue in the statute uh, is TNCs or TNC drivers are not common carriers, contract carriers, or motor carriers as defined by applicable state law, nor do they provide taxi cab or for hire vehicle service. At oral argument, counsel for Lyft conceded that certain claims could be made against Lyft and that the statute was not an immunity. Uh, counsel for plaintiff uh, Tim Eaton was taken aback, and I imagine pleasantly surprised by that by that concession. This is a case that involves a lot of Illinois constitutional issues uh, for how things are supposed to be done at the General Assembly. The Illinois Constitution uh, prohibits special legislation. Article 4 of Section 13, Section 13 of Article 4 states, the General Assembly shall shall pass no special law, special or local law, when a general law is or can be made applicable. Whether a general law is or can be made applicable shall be a matter of judicial determination. So this is why you get certain statutes that say in any county with over 3 million. Because while there's only one county in Illinois that has 3 million, Cook County, um, it could be any county could become Three million. So it's a. That's how they get around the special legislation. One of the ways they get around the special legislation requirement. It's a, it's right. a nifty little trick. Is so is nifty. this special legislation? Is this special legislation or just protection for a nascent injury, nascent industry? As to the three readings issue, the decision in this case could bear on the fate of the prejudgment interest statute, as a very similar parliamentary scheme, and I'm using the scheme in its pejorative sense. There was used to pass that bill following a veto. It's eerily similar. So Dan, tell us about this oral argument.
2: Sure. And Pat, you, you had mentioned common carrier. And so what is a common carrier? It's generally defined as a business that transports people, goods, or services and offers its services to the general public under license, license or authority provided by a regulatory body. So in Chicago area, think of uh, CTA, think of Metra, think of taxi cabs, which are under license.
0: Think, think, of, Met- think of Amtrak, think of Metra, right. think of... You know, airlines are right. common carriers, but only when you're on the conveyance. Right. When you're on their platform, not so much, but when you're on their conveyance.
2: And and uh, the, the issue here, as Pat uh, uh, mentioned, is that that these TNCs um, uh, are not deemed to be uh, licensed because they're, uh, uh, first of all, Lyft and Uber and others uh, have, have made it very clear that they're not in the business of transporting passengers or goods because Uber delivers food and stuff, that there are technology companies that that have a a platform. Uh, This came up in the insurance arena. Uh, There was a horrendous case in San Francisco years ago uh, where a a four- or five-year-old was walking on the crosswalk. A rideshare car hit the young man, and unlike uh, taxi cabs that have to have certain uh, insurance, um, there there was no insurance. And so on the insurance piece, there's also special legislation in Illinois and most other states that designate on meter in between deliveries and then actual transportation and, and again, how much insurance they have to have and whose insurance kicks in and all that good stuff. And uh, so that, that's a big part of the argument here. Um, Pat mentioned that the, the three readings rule that is a requirement of any legislation. What happened here is, is, and I think we've talked about this briefly in prior shows, is what often happens in Springfield is bills go through, and in this case, there was a bill for accounting, I believe it was, uh, that uh, had, had two readings. And then what used to happen, especially in the old uh, under under uh, Speaker Madigan, but, but also just kind of part of the process that's been going on in Springfield for decades, is that at the last minute, those bills get gutted. They get replaced with some other legislation, in this case, the TNC uh, legislation. And they then uh, will argue that those two readings may have been readings for this, even though it's a completely different bill. Uh, Tim Eaton, as, as uh, Pat mentioned, uh, is for the for the victim here, and uh, was, was very adamant that the, that's just nonsensical, that those uh, issues are, are are an issue. The assistant attorney general, uh, one of the appellees, they split time in this case. Uh, defended that, saying that the the three readings rule is kind of a technicality. Uh, but there is the enrolled bill doctrine that says if a, a, a bill is enrolled, then it kind of supersedes and, and takes over this three reading rule, uh, which is Constitution which again, be damned. Constitution be damned, which which seems to be uh you know it seems to be a stretch. Um, you know, I, I I think in this case, uh, Tim Eaton, who we both know very well, on, on rebuttal, he got emotional. He talked about his thirty year old daughter. He talked about the the reason for these TNCs and this bill. Uh, what w- was to provide rides in neighborhoods and areas of the city uh, that traditionally taxis won't go to for a variety of reasons, and that uh, uh, that uh, in this case we were uh, doing two classes of citizens, right, and and that that by um, but by engaging in this, uh, what the, the, the appellee f- uh, for Lyft uh, made the argument uh, that, that this was a voluntary undertaking, and that, that uh, we're all uh, tasked with understanding uh, the laws. Uh, but, but the strongest argument, I think, of Tim Eaton and, and for the plaintiff in this case was that this uh, 25E was under a section called safety, and it talked about all kinds of safety aspects and, and things. And then it says they're not a common carrier. Um, like you said, Pat, uh, they conceded that uh, there, there were certain actions and there would still be a potential liability uh, in this case, uh, even if, if 25E was uh, to be enforced. Um, so it raises interesting issues because, again, it was under safety. This this just uh, was a blanket statement that, that they're not common carriers. And, and I think Eden's argument- say immunity it doesn't say immunity and that was Eden's argument, right? Well, uh, even assuming that the three readings and, and, and the enrolled bill doctrine was good, you have to make the case, uh, that this was specific enough that, uh, that someone getting into that car would understand that they were taking on the risk of, uh, of a bad driver. Um, and, uh, or someone so,
0: with horribly ill intent, right? And but, so you know, put, putting bad driver aside, I mean, this person did right. well more than drive badly. So right. allegedly. So,
2: right. so it's uh, um, some some of the justices, I forget which justice asked if the hands were tied by legislative history in this case. And there really was no legislative history. There was a prior bill that had failed. And then this bill, uh, 25E, wasn't in that prior bill. And so there was a lot of discussion back and forth uh, and questions about that by the justices that, you know, again, even assuming that you could look at the legislative history, the bill that failed, th- this, was failed. Bill. failed. this was a brand <laughs> new bill. It failed. This was a brand new bill. What and, does it and, mean? What does it mean when the governor vetoes a bill? I mean, goodness. <laughs> it's done,
0: right? Right. Exactly. That's the, right. He, he, and so he the, said no, and they didn't override. So it did become a law. <laughs> uh,
2: and on this on, on this particular Bill, there was no real uh, debate or legislative history. It got, like I said, swapped out for another bill, unrelated, got passed almost immediately, voted on, and that that was that. So interesting case.
0: Yeah, it it, it will be to see what they do. Because if they rule on the three readings rule, which I hope they do, um, and they rule in favor of the plaintiffs here, business in Springfield is going to change. It dramatically, um, I have not spent a ton of time down in Springfield, but I've spent enough time to know this is something. And this, as I said, this was done with the prejudgment interest bill. Um, that there's was. there's real there's real problems here. If they uh, if this is if they're going to actually enforce the Constitution as written, and I surely hope that they do, because actually, you know, things happen when bills get read. That means they actually get read. You know, right. unlike Congress where they pass five thousand page bills or however long these ridiculous things are. No, no. They actually gotta be read. People gotta know what's going on. That's why it's there. It's not some technicality. It's gotta be available for people to be able to see. And and, and- they've gotta have bills that you know. The other protections in the Illinois or the Illinois Constitution involve, you know, they have to deal with a single subject. They can't be special legislation, so you can't pass these giant omnibus monstrosities that come out of Washington. That no one, we got to read the, we got to pass the bill to find out what's in it. I know that's right. an infamous line from from Nancy Pelosi, but it's true. They pass those bills all the time. We got to pass the bill to find what's in it. No one has time to read it. We 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 handed it to them at one a.m. and we had them vote on it at three. Right. Well, who could read that? So this is what this prevents. It's an important procedural protection that has real substantive meaning. And that was the point he was making, is that if someone had read this three times, perhaps someone would said, hey, this is a problem. We can't do this. Right. We need to amend it. So anyway, so with that, Dan, I think we're going to go to our prediction sure to go wrong for the week.
2: I think so. What do you okay. think about Munoz? Affirmed. I think so.
0: Um, and then Carlson?
2: Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's a tough one. Um, I
0: don't like it, but I think affirmed.
2: I think that's right. I, th- I think from the hearings, I think that's right. But yeah, I'm not sure that's the outcome we like. Not the result
0: but- I like, but I, I think it's going to get affirmed because I think they're worried about what's the alternative. People filing lawsuits would not, be, and not and then either getting them dismissed or having them stayed, I think they're kind of annoyed about that possibility. I do. Uh, and Doe versus Lyft, I think it's a reversal. I, I on three I don't know what basis, but right. I think they're going to reverse. They're either going to say it's special legislation, or they violated the three readings rule because Doe kind of or strike that Lyft kind of gave up the ghost on right. the scope of the the scope of the not immunity. So I, that was a major. Con- we haven't seen a concession that big since Davis versus Pace. Right. Um, th- that was a, a really major concession, I think. So, too. so with that, we're going to save our rule for the week for next week. We've got uh, for Thanksgiving, um, we've got uh, plenty of things to cover um, uh, to keep, maybe even keep us going through the new year without any new oral arguments. But uh, well, I'm sure we'll get some after the holiday, maybe get some this week. I doubt it, but we'll see. Um, and then we come back with the Supreme Court comes back after the Thanksgiving holiday with some arguments uh, the week of first week in December. So including Dobbs, including Dobbs. So uh, that's the uh, that's the Mississippi abortion case, uh, which will likely not have the same kind of procedural nightmare that the Texas abortion case uh, included. Um, a little more straightforward, just how do you apply or are we going to apply Roe and Casey uh, or are we going to overturn them or something, modify right. them somehow? We're not going to have the same procedural morass that took up the time in Texas and in the Cameron case as well um, and
2: we'll have we'll, we'll have opinions tomorrow as well from the Supreme Court we don't know which ones but there there's been reports over the weekend that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States is issuing its first uh decisions from this term wow that's quick it could, it could be Texas SBA which they did they rocket docketed it, so you, you would that think would they'd make this sense out
0: quickly that would make sense as the one especially ahead of Dobbs to be right. able to say hey you know to kind of lay the land so that the Advocates in that case can read it. You know, depends on what they say, Uh, so they can read it and prepare uh, for uh, you know the the earth changing underneath their feet a week or so before the argument. Because I think Dobbs case gets argued on December first. Here, take take this eight days before your argument, uh, and or nine days before the argument. And I can imagine briefing some busy associates over over Thanksgiving.
2: Yeah,
0: (laughs) and clerks too. Right. So with that, uh, for Dan, this is Pat. Thank you for joining the Podium and Panel Podcast.
2: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and panel each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the illinois appellate court and illinois supreme court with the occasional coverage of scotus and other appellate courts the purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.